this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampad Delhi has been witnessing a series of demolition drives of working class neighborhoods also known as slums. These demolitions are being carried out ostensibly as part of a beautification drive ahead of the G20 summit in Delhi in September this year. Places where citizens homes were reduced to rubble included neighborhoods in Merauli and Gosia colony, Tuklakabad, Kashmiri Gate and Mulchand Basti at Rajgarh. Residents whose homes were destroyed have alleged that the demolitions were carried out in complete violation of laws and rules that regulate demolitions and evictions. Many have said that the eviction notices were only served as the bulldozers were rolling into their lanes and streets. So, what are the laws that govern demolitions and evictions in Delhi? Did the municipal authorities follow them? and do the victims of these demolition drives the residents do they have any avenues to seek redress and to cope with the trauma of sudden and overnight displacement we explore all these questions in this episode of in focus and we are joined by mukta joshi legal research lead with land conflict watch along with her colleague prudviraj rupavat she has just published a report on the demolition drives in delhi mukta thank you so much for joining us Thank you so much for having me Sampath it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, Mukta to start with can you give us a quick overview of when this G20 related demolitions began I mean how many such drives there have been so far in recent months and the number of people displaced or rendered homeless as a result of these demolitions slash eviction drives So this began in December last year which is December 2022 So between December and April 2023 a number of Delhi authorities served demolition notices to residents across the city. So in December uh, there were a number there were hundreds of notices served in the Meroli and Ladasarai area which is around the Meroli archaeological park. In January in Dholakuwa 125 notices were served. and in february we saw the demolitions beginning so at least 25 homes were demolished in meroli uh, mukta let me just stop you sorry to interrupt when you say 125 notices and so on are the notices given to individual homes or families or are they are they given to a neighborhood so they're also they're pasted on individual homes as well but the way we saw the notices had been issued in many of these cases was that there would be a mass notice printed for a large area and the affected properties would be referred to by their khasra or their plot numbers so there would be a notice pasted that said if you live in khasra number for example 100 101 102 and so on and there would be dozens of such khasra numbers then you are required to vacate the area or uh, face demolition okay sorry go on i interrupted you when you were answering the first question yeah Yeah so I was just I was just talking about the timeline of when these notices and demolitions began so after December and January the demolitions began in the Meroli Ladasara area so we know that at least 25 homes were demolished in the area and over 700 notices were served which means that at least 
3,430 individuals were affected by these actions. So the way we calculated the people affected was actually, so wherever there weren't uh, reported estimates available, we multiplied the number of notices and the number of houses by 4.9, which is the average household size in the NCT of Delhi. So uh, if 700 notices were served, for example, as was the case in the Meroli Ladasara area, there were 3,430 people affected. So then after this, in mid-March, uh, there was the demolition near Kashmiri Gate of eight homeless shelters. And these homeless shelters housed approximately 5,000 people. So when you see homeless shelters were demolished, were these uh, shelters, were they owned and operated by the state itself? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and they say that the affected people and the uh, people involved with running the shelter say that no notices were served before these shelters were demolished. So the homeless who were living in the homeless shelters were again rendered homeless again? Yes, yes. Okay, sorry, go on. And after that, you were talk, you, your report mentions Mulchand Basti as well. Yes, so demolitions took place in Mulchand Basti in late March. So about 600 homes were demolished, which means nearly 3,000 individuals were affected by these demolitions. And it's in Mulchand Basti where residents say that the uh, notices were served as the demolition squads moved in and as the demolitions began. So this is a clear violation of established law on how these notices are to be served, how much in advance, but I'll get to that later when I talk about the laws in detail. So uh, after the demolitions at Mulchand Basti, in early April, uh, about a thousand eviction notices were served uh, in the Yamuna Khadar area, which are the floodplains by the Yamuna, which is near the Mulchand Basti as well. So about a thousand eviction notices were served and 150 homes were demolished shortly after. And so about 800 people have been affected by these notices and demolitions. So I, I was just going to come to like totally how many, I mean, I'm not very good at math. So how many homes, I mean, how many people have been rendered homeless by these demolitions in Delhi overall? I was just interested to know. So based on available estimates and reports, about two point, between 2.5 to 2.6 lakh people have been affected by these notices and uh, demolitions. And we know that at least uh, 1,600 homes have been demolished. Okay, okay. So in your Land Conflict Watch report, you say that uh, this is not the first such demolition drive before an international event such as the G20. Uh, these kinds of things have also happened before, say, the Commonwealth Games in 2010 when we had a different regime in power. And then uh, back then, 200,000 or 2 lakh people were displaced. So I was just uh, wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what actually happens after these demolitions ahead of international prestigious so-called events take place? I mean, what happens to the places where the homes used to stand? What happens to the people who used to live there? I mean, I was just curious, if 200,000 people are living in uh, in the places before the CWG demolitions, did they go back and rebuild their homes at the same place or did they have to leave the city? Uh, do we know anything about these aspects, either of the 2010 demolitions or about what's happening right now? So from what we saw, it depends on the conditions in each family and what their livelihood is, what their income is. For example, some families we spoke to were able to seek small rental accommodation elsewhere, despite the fact, of course, that it caused huge financial strain. Many people managed to take some of their belongings and migrate away. But there are many more people who just continue to live there or nearby in miserable conditions. For example, at least 
50 families who have been affected by the demolitions in Mulchan Basti now live under a nearby flyover. Many other families just live on the rubble and most of them will be living in makeshift tents until they're able to manage more secure housing somehow or rebuild their homes. Okay, so I'm just trying to understand this. Uh, so this entire demolition drive is for quote-unquote beautification of the city ahead of the G20. Now you are demolishing this for beautification and then after that you the, the, the same people who were evicted, they're going to be there under the flyover here and there. So how does the city get beautified by that? Yes, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll come back to that later. So, I mean, you 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 have a strong legal background. You are the uh, head of the legal research team in, in land conflict. So, I'm really interested to know about the legal side of this entire process. I mean, your report references about half a dozen different laws. I haven't had time to sort of get into all of them. So, I was just wondering if you can just quickly take us through for the benefit of our listeners at a broad big picture level, what these various laws have to say and to what extent uh, were they followed or not followed in the G20 demolition that you said began in December and is still ongoing? Right. So there are two aspects to this, uh, uh, two aspects where these violations most commonly take place. The first is the notice requirement, the statutory requirement of prior notice. And the second part is the sort of rehabilitation that needs to be provided after the family or in case the family is going to be displaced. So the Supreme Court back in 1985, if I'm not mistaken, in the case of uh, Olga Tellis, had said that if an authority fails to abide by the statutory requirement of prior notice, it would be a very clear violation of the principles of natural justice, which which lay down that every party must be heard. So what do these statutes say? What is the statutory requirement of prior notice? So a couple of legislations that would apply to the demolitions that have taken place in Delhi. First is a central legislation, the Public Premises Eviction of Unauthorized Occupants Act is what it's called. So this would apply in cases of demolitions done by the DDA. So in these cases, an estate officer is required to serve a minimum seven-day notice, which requires an occupant to either demolish the unauthorized structure or explain why it shouldn't be demolished. If you look at the demolitions that have been undertaken by the municipal corporation, so the municipal the Delhi Municipal Corporation Act says that even if a commissioner has ordered a demolition, there must be at least 30 days given for an occupant to vacate the area or the building. And the demolition must be undertaken only six weeks after that 30-day period has expired. So we can see that this prior notice requirement was not always followed, like in Mulchan Basti, where residents were handed notices as the demolitions began, like I mentioned earlier. Now, when we come to the second aspect, which is the requirement of rehabilitation. So there was a 2010 case of the Delhi High Court called Sudama Singh, where the court had held that before any eviction, it is the duty of the state to survey everyone facing eviction and to prepare a rehabilitation plan after consulting the people at risk. And it also held that if this rehabilitation is denied, then it amounts to a gross violation of the fundamental right to shelter. It also said that evictions should follow UN guidelines, which I mean, I'll get to that later as well, but they require authorities to show that an eviction is unavoidable and that it shouldn't render people homeless. So aside from, so this is the position of the Delhi High Court, which would certainly apply to all these cases. And we can see that rehabilitation has not been provided in any of them. But aside from these court orders, 
the Delhi government's own policy, which is called the Delhi Slum and the Juggi Jhopri Rehabilitation Policy. It's a 2015 policy. It forbids the government from demolishing any slum that was built before 2006. And if a Juggi has come up before 2015, then it's entitled to alternate housing before demolition. Now, even if the demolition does take place, if the Basti is encroaching on a park, for example, as would be the case in the Meroli Archaeological Park, the Delhi, uh, the DUSIB, which is the Delhi Urban Shelter Improvement Board, is required to take all efforts to relocate the Juggis in that area. But we can see that none of that has been done. Right. So, Mukta, from from what you have been explaining just now, I mean, I am not a legal person, I am not a lawyer. What I understand is there are central laws uh, that prohibit demolition without notice. Uh, there are municipal laws, there are state laws, and there is a Delhi, there is a Supreme Court order, and there is a Delhi High Court order. Okay, and both of or all of them put together cover two aspects broadly. One is about how you go about demolishing or evicting, and secondly, about rehabilitation. And in all these aspects, there have been violations. I'm just wondering, like, how does, is there any, is there no penalty for violating these laws? Is it like uh, all kosher if you just violate and go on doing it? Like, isn't there any intervention from the judiciary to stop this uh, gross violation of the law of the land by the state? So I think if we look at the demographic that is usually affected by these demolitions and these violations, I think that provides an explanation as to why uh, the judiciary is not immediately accessed for these violations. It's because most of the people affected don't have access to lawyers who will help them point these issues out in court. There are uh, groups like uh, the Human Rights Law Network uh, that has been representing uh, affected families and victims of the demolitions in a few cases in Mehroli and in Tughlaqabad as well when they appeared in the Supreme Court. But the way the judiciary has responded to this to give some context, if we take the case of the Tughlaqabad area, in 2016, the Supreme Court had declared Tughlaqabad Fort a protected monument, following which the Delhi High Court made a motion to secure the area and clear it of encroachments. So the case which concerns the land dispute is currently pending in court. But even in this case, the High Court had ordered in April for the Archaeological Survey of India to remove encroachments in the area with the support of the uh, municipal corporation. So as we know, that part of the order has been very strictly followed by the authorities. But interestingly, the High Court had also given detailed directions for rehabilitation. And they had ordered authorities to have a meeting and prepare a rehabilitation plan, but these appear to not have been followed. So the residents approached the Supreme Court for a stay after the demolitions had begun, but the Supreme Court refused to grant a stay. Okay. If you look at the case of the Meroli Archaeological Park and the Meroli area, so there's one JJ cluster, one colony in Delhi, in the Mehroli area called Gosia Colony. So uh, the Delhi High Court granted a stay on the demolition of uh, Gosia Colony. There's also a number of apartment buildings actually in the area uh, which have been affected. So a bunch of those affected people have filed cases. Uh, they're currently pending before the Delhi High Court. But many more affected residents have not managed to approach the court for lack of means and a lack of support. And uh, if we look at a third case, which is the demolition, at, uh, the notices served at Dhola Kuwa. So those demolitions were stayed in January by the state government of Delhi itself. 
Okay, so if I understand uh, what you're saying correctly, one, the main reason these violations continue to take place by the state, violations by the state in terms of how they go about demolitions without rehabilitation. One reason is uh, the affected parties are from uh, poor or marginalized backgrounds. They're not able to access the judicial uh, system of redress. And secondly, even on those occasions when they have been able to access, the response from the judiciary has not been adequate. Is that right? Yes, it hasn't always succeeded in getting them relief. Okay. So, in the case of Meroli, which you spoke about, I mean, there was this uh, report I read that it, it was very important uh, for the government because the summit, G20 summit, delegates were going to be taken on a heritage walk. Now, here there is a clear link uh, between the, the place where the demolitions have happened and the G20 summit. Is there such a link in all of these demolitions? Is, is it the case, like say in Kashmiri Bay uh, Gate and Mulchand, Basti and all those other places as well? Are there, is there going to be some kind of heritage war? Like how is a demolition there going to help the G20 summit at all? I mean, what is the link? So, like you said, so Meroli, there's a heritage walk planned. In Dholakua, we know that the area is being redone because it connects to the airport from where foreign dignitaries will be received. But overall, in other areas, it's basically a bunch of distinct court decisions and executive orders that have led to each individual demolition. For example, in the Meroli Archaeological Park case, the case has been going on since 2015. And since 2015, the court had been ordering the authorities to conduct a survey and secure the boundaries since back then. But there was a total inaction on part of the authorities for years and years. But now action is suddenly being taken. And these actions in areas across the city to reclaim the land are intensifying as the city authorities simultaneously announce beautification plans that involve the removal of encroachments without clearly mapping this, so to speak. And affected residents, when we spoke to them, they also, I mean, in each case, they also told us what officials had informally told them while conducting these demolitions, which is that they had been ordered to clear these localities as soon as possible because G20 was coming up. Okay. Okay. So, moving on from the legal uh, side of it, where it's very clear what's what the scene is, can you talk a little bit about the human side of uh, these demolitions, the impact on the lives of children, on on livelihood security, uh, especially because these are working class neighborhoods. Uh, how does this demolition, eviction without rehabilitation affect the lives of children in these places, livelihoods in these places from what you have observed during your uh, reportage and so on? So one obvious immediate effect of these demolitions is that there's an immediate drop in living conditions. This is made so much worse in a city like Delhi, with, which has extreme weather conditions. And these bastis are cramped accommodations to begin with. For example, we found 12 people living in a three-room house. So now with the home demolished, there's no question of the living conditions being fit for human habitation in any way. So these are communities made of low-income individuals. Many of them are daily wagers. They experience wage loss in the days immediately post-demolition and while they're homeless. And of course, there's tremendous material loss when their belongings are demolished. Any wages earned uh, henceforth would now go towards seeking shelter rather than being able to meet other needs, such as school fees, for example. And then this begins to affect children. The living conditions are not fit for children to, I mean, for them to be living in, let alone for them to get ready and go to school. Many children fall ill. Many of them are forced to drop out. Some of them are pushed into child labor. Some of them are pushed into doing childcare at home. 
So the consequences of demolition in every way, but especially on the lives of children and for livelihood security are truly devastating. Right. I mean, that's a lot of uh, interesting and strong and disturbing uh, points you've made there. I mean, wage loss, uh, material loss because of loss of possessions uh, and because they have to channel whatever little funds they have towards seeking shelter, then they're not able to pay the school fees, as you said. And that affects uh, the children's ability to go to school. So you have more dropouts, children going into child labor. You've got one department of the state ostensibly dedicated to putting children in schools, taking them out of child labor. And you have another uh, you know, arm of the state creating the conditions for children dropping out of school, for children going into child labor, for uh, immiseration of large uh, numbers of people, which is very uh, troubling indeed. Now, we looked at the legal side of it. We looked at the human side of it. I was just wondering, what about the political uh, dimension of this process? I mean, I understand. I mean, I would imagine one would imagine that most of these residents have a voter ID card or whatever they vote in elections. So, isn't there any kind of an electoral backlash that the state should worry about? Government worry about? Did the residents in these bastis from from your interactions with them? Uh, did they try to contact their elected representatives, the politicians they voted for? In an, in an attempt to sort of get some kind of relief from these measures? So I think it's important to understand that there isn't any one party that's doing this. So the beautification initiatives that have been announced involve a number of authorities, which include the Delhi Development Authority, which comes under the BJP-led central government, and the Municipal Corporation of Delhi, which comes under the municipal-level government, which is led by the Aam Admi Party. If you look at the Commonwealth Games evictions, there was a Congress government in power at the time, like you said. So we also saw that the issue of slums, I mean, it features in poll promises year after year, but these promises are just not kept. So I, I mean, I happened to speak to one woman affected who said she's been cursing herself for voting for the Aam Admi Party. Then later, the day after the article was published, actually, we uh, received images of Tughlaqabad residents who have sat in protest. And I saw one of the posters was referring to the BJP's own slogan during the MCD elections, which was Jahan Juggi Makan, which means that they'll build a home wherever there's an informal settlement. Again, another election promise that has been broken. And with Tughlaqabad, at least not a single political leader from any major political party has paid them a visit. Uh, residents told us they named politicians who had stopped answering their calls. So they all feel that the parties have turned against them. And while they have no problem coming to them and asking for votes, these were voters who were affected by these demolitions. So I think the general feeling is just one of betrayal. But the situation is pretty hopeless because th there really isn't an alternative in sight. Right. It's not just a story of broken homes. It's also a story, uh, it seems like a, a story of broken promises as well. We're running out of time, uh, Mukta. So one final question before we wrap up. Uh, you made a reference earlier about UN guidelines on evictions. I mean, G20 is a big international event. The UN is an even bigger forum. And if we want uh, to command international respect and stature, I'm sure it would not harm if India were to follow UN guidelines on evictions, we no harm in hoping, right? So what are the exact uh, guidelines? What do they say? Uh, it's for the benefit of our listeners so that, you know, internationally, what, what is expected in terms of the guidelines to be followed for evictions of this kind? So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there was a 2010 High Court case, which was later affirmed by the Supreme Court. 
and this case relied upon the UN basic principles and guidelines on development based evictions and displacement so these guidelines are very comprehensive but a, to just to take you through a couple of important ones first of all it the guidelines include a requirement for authorities to demonstrate that an eviction is unavoidable they also say that a state should explore all possible alternatives to evictions and all affected groups should be provided with relevant information they should be fully consulted they should participate throughout the entire process and they should be allowed to propose alternatives that should be considered by the authorities more importantly these guidelines say that evictions should not result in individuals being rendered homeless or vulnerable to the violation of other human rights they also detail uh, minimum standards for living conditions in order for it to be considered adequate in the event that alternative accommodation is given but to be honest this is the fourth major demolition story i've worked on in less than a year and yet these guidelines are simply never followed right i mean uh, those are very important points uh, which you brought out in the un guidelines uh, mukta one is of course consultation which doesn't happen hasn't happened a second is participating in the process of planning and all that doesn't happen third they should not be rendered homeless when they already have homes don't render them homeless in the name of evictions doesn't happen and then of course uh, other fundamental rights should not be violated of course they are violated they the demolitions happen with the police in hand so we have seen this happen and as you mentioned in your report you have linked your report to several other demolitions in other states as well uh, and the whole iconic uh, this kind of the symbolic uh, nature of the bulldozer in certain uh, mainstream narratives which you have seen that also sort of doesn't add uh, to the solution of this violation of the law when it comes to evictions and demolitions uh, will probably uh, unfortunately uh, also be seeing i think more such demolition drives uh, hopefully the judiciary might take this up you said in your report there are pleas and petitions pending in the courts we'll have to wait and see how that develops thank you so much for joining us mukta and for sharing your observations and uh, the legal background of these drives and the laws that regulate them thank you so much thank you so much for having me in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon